IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Ben Sheehan, a Funny or Die alum and an award-winning executive producer who has spent his career creating innovative and entertaining content in an effort to make politics more accessible. In 2016, he was executive director of the Save the Day PAC that used videos to register 50,000 young voters. And his various projects have received over a billion views. And yes, that's billion with a B. Ben is here to talk about his new book, OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? An on-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work. It's an easy read that strips away the old English and explains the Constitution and Declaration of Independence in terms we can all understand. Welcome to Deconstructed, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, TJ. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed your book. It's like a funny roadmap of how our government works with directions that we can actually follow. (laughs) So why did you write the book? So during my 2018 work, I started an organization called OMGWTF that during the 2018 midterm stood for Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida. And we were educating people about the races for governor, secretary of state, and attorney general in those states. And I learned through our live events that a lot of people didn't know that they even had an attorney general at the state level or a state secretary of state. And this got me thinking about the state of civic education in the United States. And so I started researching and I found out that today only eight states require a year of civics or government education at some point between kindergarten and 12th grade. And we've been chipping away at civics education heavily in the last 18 years specifically. And so we're graduating these generations of young people who don't really know how the government works because they never learned. So I thought maybe I could use my background and knowledge to sort of start at the beginning with our founding document. And where did your basic information come from? How early in your life did you engage in the Constitution? In a way, since birth, I was born in D.C. I grew up in a political family with one parent who worked with the government and one parent who worked in the government uh, for a prominent United States senator. And so I would get civics lessons over dinner starting as young as four, five, six years old. And I went on to study politics and government in college. And when I was at Funny or Die, I did a ton of political content for the site, helping to demystify complex subjects and issues. And so I sort of soaked this all in and I found a way to merge the comedy production with the information dissemination, so to speak. Well, that's outstanding. Let's start with the Constitution. Do you have any special comments about the Constitution? Who wrote it, the preamble, wherever you'd like to start? Sure. So it was written between May 25th and September 17th. And it was largely written I would say of everyone who was involved in writing the Constitution, the person who had the biggest hand in it is known as the father of the Constitution is James Madison. And he's probably not even on our top list of three or four founders that we immediately think of. But of any one person, he had the most to do with writing the Constitution. He wrote the Virginia plan that was the first presented at the convention. He wrote the entire Bill of Rights. He wrote dozens of essays that became the Federalist Papers to argue for its ratification. So he's sort of this person that is largely relegated to like the second tier of founders, but had the most to do out of anybody with actually writing this document. 
And how about the preamble that sets up the Constitution? Any specific comments on that? Well, I think it tells you why the Constitution exists. And one thing to note that the preamble is not actually a legally enforceable part of the Constitution. It's the intro. But it talks about establishing justice and ensuring domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense. And I think that is, especially when it comes to Congress, you know, what does Congress raise our tax dollars for? It's to provide for the common defense and general welfare. So why do we need this document? What does it do for us? And I think it sets the tone in a really clear and easily understood way. It also notes that it's for our posterity as well, not only for ourselves, but our posterity. And I think what you're doing is critically important to that for the reason that you described, that civics isn't offered that frequently anymore. Let's talk about maybe the first three articles. I know we don't have time for all seven, but give me an overview so more than 37% will know what's, what the three <laughs> branches of government are at least. Yes, that is a terrifying stat that only uh, that less than 40% of the, the country can name the three branches of government and many cannot even name one. But the way that the Constitution is laid out in the first three articles is very much intentional. It starts with Congress, which is spread across 10 sections, and then followed by the executive branch and the judicial branch. But this is something that I think gets not overlooked, but sort of mistaught in a way, because we think of three branches of government having equal power, right? We hear the words probably in our civic class, if we, if we got it, you know, co-equal branches of government with checks and balances. But what I really learned from diving into this document is that co-equal is not the same thing as checks and balances. And in fact, it's really Congress that's meant to be the driver of our government. You know, these three branches can check each other and balance each other out, but it doesn't mean that the power is split one third, one third, one third. And I think it's really clear to anyone from reading this that it's intended for Congress to have clearly the most power and be the real driver and sort of the top branch of our government. And give me a few examples of that. Sure. So, I mean, raising revenue through our tax dollars starts with the House, and only Congress can do that. Only Congress can declare war, although we've entered a lot of wars in the last 50 and 60 years that haven't been officially declared by Congress. In fact, the last war that Congress actually did declare was World War II. Everything from regulating ships in ports to being able to override state laws on elections to being able to coin money, establish weights and measures. I mean, a lot of sort of rudimentary things we don't think about necessarily, like who did establish the standardized uh, measuring system rather than the metric system. Oh, that's something Congress could do. It could change our system of measurements. The post office falls under Congress's jurisdiction. And there's just so many things listed in this document that Congress does that we either overlook or kind of don't realize it has the power to do. And how about Article 2? We talk a lot about the power of the presidency today. What does it really say in the Constitution? So it really says that the president is the person who is in charge of enforcing the laws. I think it's everyone knows that the president doesn't make the laws. The president can sign bills into law, but the Congress can pass a law without the president being involved if two thirds of both branches of the Congress were to override a veto. So the president is really there to enforce the existing laws. And I think over time, more and more power has been delegated to that branch. And there are some sort of vague areas where it's not specific about what power the president has, specifically the power of being the commander in chief of the army and the navy and the militia when it's called into service. But it really is the president to sort of take the laws passed by Congress, the representatives of the people, 
and implement them. So it really is very much enforcing existing law job, not somebody who is legislating from the executive branch. And what did the Constitution anticipate the role of the judicial branch to be? It's to interpret the document and to say what the law means, what the Constitution means. And one really strange thing, two very strange things about the Supreme Court specifically. One is that the Constitution doesn't say how many justices are on the Supreme Court. Ever since 1869, we've had nine justices, but Congress could pass a law tomorrow to to change it to 15 or 20 or 50, whatever it wanted. And the second thing is that the Supreme Court doesn't have the constitutional power to strike down laws if it thinks they are unconstitutional. This is something that started with, you know, again, if people got their one civics class between kindergarten and 12th grade, they maybe heard about Marbury versus Madison. But this case established a precedent where the Supreme Court, if it thinks that a law is unconstitutional, can strike that down. But that power isn't in the founding document. And ever since 1803, we've just kind of been cool with the Supreme Court striking down laws if it doesn't agree with them. But we didn't actually constitutionally give that power to the Supreme Court. So we could literally have one justice. And does it even have to be a member of the Supreme Court? Because I'm thinking maybe you. <laughs> Me? Well, both you, TJ, and I myself have all the necessary qualifications from a constitutional perspective to be on the Supreme Court. We also have all the necessary qualifications to be both the Speaker of the House or the Senate President pro tempore, since there are literally no requirements for any of those roles. Well, Ben, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about the Constitution when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Ben Sheehan, the author of OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? A Non-Boring Guide to How Our Democracy is Supposed to Work. So let's talk about the Bill of Rights. We've touched upon the Constitution. Let's move into the amendments. Starting with how many proposed amendments have there been since we're always told how difficult it is to get an amendment through? So there have actually been around 11,000 amendments introduced in Congress since 1789, which is a lot, but only 33 of those have then been proposed to the states to vote on for ratification, 27 of which have been added to the Constitution. Well, let's start with the Bill of Rights. How about the First Amendment? How do you see that being applied in today's world? Well, it's extremely relevant. I mean, we, we look around right now at people protesting most of the time peaceably. And this is something that is a constitutional right, not just to protest and assemble peaceably, but to petition the government for a redress of grievances, aka complain about the government, often to the government. This is also the amendment that protects free speech, freedom of religion, meaning uh, Congress can't establish or ban a religion, free press. But, you know, there are some limits on the First Amendment, the most famous being shouting fire in a crowded theater things like certain types of pornography. But what is, I think, most misunderstood today about the First Amendment is not understanding that it applies specifically to Congress. It starts out, Congress can make no law. We talk about Facebook and we talk about social media platforms, you know, censoring speech and that being a violation of the First Amendment, unless that social media platform is acting at the behest of Congress to silence a religion 
Facebook making a decision about what people can and can't say on its platform is in no way a violation of the First Amendment. And I think sometimes some of these tech leaders purposely confuse people and make that seem like, you know, it is a violation of people's rights, but it really isn't. Private companies can do whatever they want when it comes to policing free speech because those companies are not Congress. And how about freedom of religion? Is it a specific religion or is it something that we need to address, including non-religions like atheism? Well, there's no religion specifically mentioned in the Constitution. They don't mention any specific type of religion. I guess the Constitution is very careful to mention religion, not even just in the Bill of Rights, but a few times. You can't be made to take a religious test in order to hold federal office. When people are sworn into uh, federal positions, they are given the option of oath or affirmation, affirmation being a non-religious way to promise that you will uphold the document. So in the Bill of Rights, but also in the seven articles themselves, there are many instances of the founders going out of their way to carve out any sort of forced religious event in the document and in the government. Let's talk for a minute about the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. How are they relevant in the grand scheme of things? Sure. So the Ninth Amendment is kind of a genius move on James Madison's part. I think they had the wherewithal to understand that in the four months they were writing the Constitution and in the time after that when Madison was writing the Bill of Rights, they weren't able to come up with every single right that people had. And so the idea is that what's in the, can the Constitution can't be used to infringe uh, disparage the rights that people have outside of the Constitution. And the Tenth Amendment is really fascinating because it's the one that establishes the limits of the federal government, specifically that if the Constitution doesn't say the federal government can do something, and it doesn't say that it is prohibited to the states, then it's left to the states and the people. So that's a fitting cap on the Bill of Rights, which is dedicated to our individual rights, but it really establishes what the federal government is limited to, and it's limited to what is in this document. So the states have far more authority under the Constitution than the federal government, correct? I would say because anything that's not in there is left up to the states. And I think it goes back to really our misunderstanding of the federal government. And you know, you, you bring up federalism earlier, but States and local governments have so much power in our lives. It almost helps to think about it like, you know, your city government is the nearest circle around you. And then the outer circle from that is your county and then your state after that and the federal government. But the circles closest to you have the biggest impact on your life. And there are huge things that the federal government obviously is able to do when it comes to taxes, when it comes to defense, when it comes to many other things. But really, state and local governments are so often overlooked, and we misunderstand truly how much power they have in our lives. Now, let's move to a period of the country that was critical and formative. Let's talk about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Sure. So these are the Reconstruction Amendments. So quick refresher, Reconstruction from 1865 to 1877, the 12-year period after the end of the Civil War. And these amendments moved the rights for African-Americans and former slaves much further along than they were, although they each had loopholes. So the 13th Amendment being the abolition of slavery, of course, for some people might be aware that it carves out prison labor and labor as a punishment for a crime as permissible. And, you know, if we make that relevant to today, there are a number of states that don't pay prisoners at all for labor because of that carve out in the 13th Amendment. 
in the 14th Amendment, which is a very long amendment, there's five sections. We often focus on the first section, which talks about birthright citizenship and equal protection of the laws. But the second section is fascinating because it kind of gave voting rights protections in a way to African-Americans before the 15th. And what it said is that if you were a U.S. citizen and a resident of your state and a man and you were 21 or older and your state denied your right to vote, then your state would lose representation in the House. Like the population basis for representatives would be shrunk by however many people who fit those qualifications under the 14th Amendment, the state didn't let vote. But this punishment didn't go far enough. And so the 15th Amendment, two years later, specifically said people can't have their voting rights denied or abridged if they have them based on their race, color, and previous condition of servitude. But again, the 15th Amendment doesn't specifically say that people of color have the right to vote. It just says if they have that right, it can't be taken away based on the color of their skin or their previous condition of servitude. And it points to a fundamental flaw, in my opinion, in the document, that we don't fundamentally have the right to vote. It's up to our states, but there are certain things we can't have our voting rights taken away based on. And how did the presidential election of 1876 impact Reconstruction? I think about this all the time, not just because I'm stuck at home with a lot of time on my hands, but the 1876 election, I think, is perhaps the most pivotal election in our country's history. Because what happened is you had the one of the five times in American history where the winner of the popular vote lost the Electoral College. And he lost the Electoral College by one vote. He won by 3% and lost the Electoral College by one vote. And his supporters rebelled and revolted and threatened violence and even tried to assassinate the Electoral College winner, Rutherford B. Hayes. And so Congress established a commission to figure out who won the election and prevent the country from sliding into another civil war. And the compromise that they came up with, sometimes called the Compromise of 1877, or my preferred term is the Great Betrayal, is that in exchange for the federal government led by President Rutherford B. Hayes, removing the last of the federal troops from the South who were enforcing these voting rights amendments and the abolition on slavery and 14th Amendment. The supporters of Tilden, who was the Democratic nominee and the loser, they would recognize the Republican winner, Rutherford B. Hayes. And so that's what happened. Uh, They acknowledged uh, Hayes' victory by one electoral vote. And he pulled federal troops out of the South, and that gave way to almost 100 years of Jim Crow laws and a real recession in the rights of African Americans, particularly in the South. And in that regard, there were more than 1,500 African Americans in local, state, and federal office, including eight Black U.S. representatives in 1875. But after that great betrayal, as I think you appropriately call it, It was another 94 years until eight African-Americans served in Congress. So we actually regressed because of that backroom deal. What about the 19th Amendment, since we're talking about voting? Sure. So the 19th Amendment in, in 1920 ratified protected women's right to vote from being taken away because of, of, or really anyone's right to vote being taken away because of their sex. Again, very similar language to the 15th. It doesn't say women fundamentally have the right to vote, but if they have it, it can't be taken away because of their sex. And what's interesting about this is that 30 years before the 19th Amendment was ratified, back in 1890, Wyoming became the first state to allow women to vote. In fact, 14 or 15 states before the 19th Amendment allowed women 
to vote. And so again, it goes back to the fact that states have a ton of power, especially with determining how we vote in this country. Well, Ben, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about your book and how our government works when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Ben Sheehan, the author of OMG, WTF Does the Constitution Actually Say? You know, we've talked about the Constitution, we've talked about the articles, we've talked about the amendments. Let's talk about current events and how the Constitution may help us address them. Is there anything in the Constitution that tells us how to respond to COVID-19? There is not. There's nothing in the Constitution that tells us how to respond to a pandemic specifically. But there is this part, as I mentioned earlier, about Congress raising money to provide for the common defense and general welfare. And that includes raising money to give to states to handle various things. And I think about it a lot. Our response in some ways mirrors that to something that would be defense related or military related. But for something like this, it really is. And that's what we're seeing happening is, you know, the federal stockpiles of PPE or ventilators being given out to states and those obviously being paid for by our federal tax dollars and laws being passed by Congress to further finance the state efforts. But it really is more of a federal government raising money to then give to states to implement it rather than the federal government by itself leading the response from top to bottom. It's interesting. I always concentrate on Article 1, Section 8, because it talks about the collection of money in effect and how it can be deployed. And it's for the common defense or the general welfare of the United States, not for a partisan constituency that will help me get reelected. And so many of our bills and our money is redirected that way. So it's interesting that you bring this up because I think COVID-19 is an example of what federal dollars should be spent on. Now, Another big controversy we're running in today is our elections. Who oversees our elections according to the Constitution? So they're largely overseen at the state level by the state legislatures who can establish the times, places, and manner of our elections. They also decide how we choose the electors who vote for president and vice president. But Congress can override the laws around electing representatives and senators, like establishing election day. The Congress can also decide when the electors vote. So they're, you know, it's largely run at the state level, but there are certain parts that the Congress can override and, and establish a law that's uniform for the country. And there's a big controversy now of whether we'll know who wins the 2020 presidential election on election night. I don't know why the fascination with having to be the first to call the election. But when you look at the process itself, do the voters actually pick the president? They don't pick them directly. What they do... And it's only really been since 1880 that every state has allowed us, meaning the residents of a state, to vote for president. And that popular vote in the state is used to pick which slate of electors will be actually voting directly for the president. For the first hundred years of the country, state legislatures, again, chose the electors and we didn't have a say at all. So it gets to sort of the fundamental truth that regardless of what we want to believe, we don't, as citizens, fundamentally have a right to vote in or for president. And we see the same thing in primaries and caucuses. There have actually been some lawsuits in recent years that have challenged the efficacy of the primaries and caucuses. 
And the parties are actually viewed as private entities. So when you talked about the First Amendment and how social media doesn't really have to conform because the First Amendment only applies to Congress, it's really the same thing. These private clubs, if you will, the parties, are allowed to make up the rules as they go if they so choose. We could have two different candidates. You and I might be running against each other on November 3rd. You never know. Look, I would prefer to have you on the ticket with me, but if it has to be adversarial, then so be it. (laughs) There you go. Well, let's talk about some other things. What do you find to be weird but true about the Constitution? I would say the strangest thing that I found in the Constitution is in Article 1 about letters of mark and reprisal, which basically was sort of the militia of sorts for the Navy. The idea being that before the, before the United States had a fully financed you know, giant Navy, private citizens who owned ships could get permission from Congress to act as sort of a volunteer member of the Navy and capture and plunder enemy ships. And then an admiralty court would decide what they could keep. The strangest thing is that, I mean, this is called privateering. The strangest thing is that technically it hasn't been outlawed or banned because the United States hasn't actually signed any prohibiting treaties. So it could technically be brought back, although I don't know why we would do that. And I think it would just be a bunch of people on jet skis, like, you know, going after enemy ships. But there's a lot of ship stuff in here, which makes sense. We didn't have cars. We didn't have planes. But just the sheer amount of things having to deal with ships coming and going who can keep warships, what maritime jurisdiction looks like. There's just a ton of stuff about the ocean and ships that I didn't really foresee before I started this project. Who doesn't like to play pirate? And, you know, <laughs> and you're telling me it's constitutionally available to us. What other types of strange things are included in the Constitution from your perspective? Well, I do want to tell a story about the, the 20th, 27th Amendment because there are some really strange things in the sense of how certain amendments came to be. And this seems like a no-brainer the way that 27th Amendment works, which is the Congress can't give itself a pay raise until an election has come in between. But this wasn't something that was being heavily discussed at the time. It was a, a college student at the University of Texas who decided to write a term paper about an amendment that he discovered that hadn't expired, and he got a C on it, and he was angry. And so he started writing state legislatures, and over the next 10 years, they began ratifying the amendment. And then in 1992, it got added to the U.S. Constitution. So I'm not aware of any other term paper at Texas or otherwise that has led to an actual constitutional amendment other than this. But some of the ways that certain amendments came to be is truly fascinating. And did it impact his grade as well? So he petitioned the University of Texas a couple of years ago to give him a change to an A plus for actually leading to a constitutional amendment, and they only gave him an A. <laughs> That's a tough crowd. You know, I want to do one thing before we start to wrap up. I wanted to note that your bibliography section has some very, very useful information, and a lot of people don't always read the acknowledgments of the bibliography. I happen to be one of those guys that does. Yours is really exceptional. It gives people a lot of direction for additional information, and you're to be complimented on that. But Ben, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and pick up a copy of your book, OMGWTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? So they can go to Amazon, they can go to Barnes & Noble, they can go to IndieBound and Bookshop, which are two great sites that connect you with an independent bookseller, and it's available at most major retailers around the country. Well, Ben Sheehan, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. 
I really enjoy reading your book and I recommend it to everyone. It's a great primer on how our government works at a time when politically correct courses have replaced civics in our schools. And as President Lincoln said on the eve of the Civil War, every generation needs to renew its commitment to democracy. So Ben, thank you for making it easy for the present and future generations to do it. And thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you so much, TJ. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.